Father, we come before you today rejoicing in the beauty of your holiness, rejoicing in your control over all things. And Lord, even as we look around this world and all the fallenness and sin that's there and the wickedness, we know that you are in control and you are bringing about your good plan of salvation to a redeemed people. Father, we rejoice in your word because it gives us life. Lord, we thank you for the great hope that we have in Jesus and the Holy Spirit that lives within us, that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, and there's nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. Oh, Father, I pray today as we open up your word that you teach us by your spirit, that you direct us, that you would convict us, that you would change us, Father, that we might be more and more like your Son. Father, we trust you now this time with your word, what a privilege it is to have it. And Father, we praise you for it and praise you for what you're going to do through it. For the glory of yourself and the Spirit and your Son. Amen. He was 25 years old, and it should have been the best year of his life. He was marrying his sweetheart, Annie, and they had this wonderful trip planned to Europe. And while they were on their honeymoon, there was an intense thunderstorm that caught them unaware. And tragically, Annie was struck by lightning. And she was paralyzed for the rest of her life. This is the story of Benjamin Warfield, B.B. Warfield. A lot of you know as a great theologian. They never traveled again. They never had children. He was a great teacher. He wrote lots of Christian articles. But he found himself with his wife throughout the day, every day, as he cared for her and provided for her. And the only pictures they saw were the pictures that people sent them on postcards. Life has strange turns. Life has destructive turns and discouraging turns. And yet, these are the words of Benjamin Warfield toward the end of his life. The plan he had for his life changed by the providence of God. And yet, here's what he had to say. Take any occurrence that happens, great or small, the fall of an empire or the fall of a sparrow, which our Lord himself tells us never happens without our Father knowing it. God is assuredly aware of everything that happens in his universe. There are no dark corners in it into which his all-seeing eye cannot pierce. There's nothing that occurs in it which is hidden from his universal glance. But certainly, neither can it be imagined that anything which occurs in his universe takes him 
by surprise. Nor yet can he be imagined to be indifferent to its happening, as, though, as, as if though he sees it coming, he does not care whether it happens or not. This is not the kind of God our God is. He is a God who infinitely cares, cares even about the smallest things. Did not our Savior speak of the sparrows and the very hairs of our heads to teach us this? Well then, can it be imagined that though in infinitely caring, God stands impotently over against the happenings in his universe and cannot prevent them? Is he to be supposed to be watching from all eternity things which he does not wish to happen? Coming, 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 ever coming, until at last they come, and he is unable to stop them? Why, if he could not prevent their happening any other way, he need not have made the universe, or he might have made it differently. There was nothing to require him to make this universe, or any other universe, except for his own good pleasure. And there is nothing to compel him to allow anything which he does not wish to happen to occur in the universe which he has made for his own good pleasure. Clearly things cannot occur in God's universe, the occurrence of which is displeasing to him. He does not stand helplessly by while they occur against his wish. Whatever occurs has been foreseen by him from all eternity. And it succeeds in occurring only because its occurrence meets his wish. We know that it could not occur unless it had a function to perform. Such a place to fill, a part to play in God's comprehensive plan. And knowing that, we are satisfied. This universe is not here by chance. And we are not controlled by fate or luck. We are in the hands of a sovereign God who has allowed everything to exist as it does. He allows evil to exist. He keeps it within certain parameters. And all of this for his grand plan to provide redemption to mankind. And when we see the tragedy of Benjamin Warfield's life with his wife, and we see Joseph and what he's going through. And we, have, we see other Christians who deal with all kinds of issues of disease or financial uh, calamity or other issues. What do we do with that? This all fits under God's providence. And Bob touched on this last time that we talked about Joseph. God's providence is God's interaction with his creation. God is not a deist who made this world and left it alone and left us here to fend for ourselves. He is intimately and intricately involved in his creation. What is God's providence? It is, here's a good definition by um, Wayne Grudem. God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that he does three things. First, he keeps them existing and maintaining the properties with which he created them. Everything in this, in this world, main, he keeps them maintaining their properties. Ice, as you were driving in Texas this last week, still maintained its properties of ice. Slipping and sliding along. God maintains everything 
by his, by his hand. Two, he cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. This is why the universe we live in is stable. Because God is in control of maintaining everything to make sure it functions as he designed it to function. And then finally, he directs them to fulfill his purposes. So everything has its own properties, and yet he still, by his own wisdom and power, directs them for his own purposes. He doesn't take men and coerce their will, but he uses them and the freedom that they have, obviously their freedom to sin, for his own purposes. And so God is orchestrating and moving everything toward a goal and toward a purpose in life. We have to be careful that we don't fall into the the myth of secular humanism and feel that everything is by chance. It's not. Every event in your life is under the control and under the hand of God. When we last saw Joseph, he was the favored son of Jacob. And yet we find that all of a sudden Joseph is on the ropes as his brothers have, have had hatred in their heart from him for such a long time. And they take him, they throw him in the pit, and he's on the very verge of being killed. And yet, providentially, God softens the heart of Reuben to have a plan to come back to rescue him. And God providentially puts it into the heart of Judah that he needs, we don't need to go ahead and kill Joseph, we'll just sell him. And providentially, the caravan comes along at just the right time, and they sell Joseph. And Joseph is on his way. He is on his way on a mission that he doesn't even know about. He's had a dream about his brothers and sisters, his mom and dad bowing down to him. He doesn't know what the plan is. And this is the way it is in our lives, isn't it? We understand God's word. We rejoice in God's word. We know there's a general plan in a different direction. But we don't know all the little detours we're going to take, do we? We have no idea. Back in Genesis 38, we kind of skipped over that glorious chapter. But let me give you the highlights of that chapter. Judah, who is, who is the one through whom the promise seed would come, to whom the Messiah would come, Judah separates from his brothers and he goes down and he marries a Canaanite girl. And he has three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah, by this woman. And his kids are so bad. You think your kids are bad? That God struck down two of them. Two of the three. Ur was the first, and he married Tamar. And because of his wickedness, God struck him dead. And so, with the Leverite plan for marriage, where you would go ahead and, and help uh, procreate a, a family for your lost brother, Onan was supposed to do that. Onan wouldn't do that. He wouldn't keep his brother's name, and even though he'd been given to Tamar, and so God struck him down. And then Judah was supposed to give his last son to Tamar to carry on the line of his brothers. Judah failed to do that. Judah's wife dies. 
And we have this story where Tamar goes along the road dressed as a harlot. And Judah comes and propositions her. And they have this little big moral impurity in which he sleeps with her and she becomes pregnant. And we have this little story right here between 37 and 39. What's the significance of that story? That Jacob's sons are despicable? Well, that's probably one, one line we could go there. But what we see is that in the midst of man's sin, in the midst of man's wickedness, he maintains the line of Judah for the coming Messiah. Judah and Tamar in an ungodly relationship, give birth to Perez, who is in the line of Christ. So here we have, if we're, watching, we're watching the movie, we go to the scene where here's Joseph and he's thrown in the pit, and he's on his way to, to Egypt. Then we come to the scene with Judah and, and Tamar, and what's the significance of this? That the Messiah is still going to come. Despite the wickedness, despite marrying the Canaanite woman, despite all these things, an immoral relationship produces a child that God chose to bring into this world for the purpose of carrying on the line of the Messiah. So a little side note here. God is the creator of life. Whether it's from a marriage or an immoral relationship, or whatever it is, if that child is conceived, it was by the hand of God. And it has a purpose in life. That person has a purpose in life. And so God, in the midst of all this craziness in Judah's family, is maintaining the line of the Messiah. Isn't that glorious? And then he is sending Joseph down to Egypt. And because we have already read the story, we know he's the front man going in to prepare the way for the entire family to eventually what? Move to Egypt and be preserved. Isn't God great? Don't we wish that we had that story for our own lives? Already laid out and written for us. The problem is, is that Joseph didn't have it and neither do we. We don't have our life laid out for us. God's given us moral guidelines. He's given us tremendous promises of what he's going to accomplish. He's told us what we need to be about. And yet there's mystery there, isn't there? We don't know what this year's going to hold, do we? We don't know what the next week holds. And yet, God is faithful. John J. Murray wrote, The plan of God is perfect. The plan is exhaustive. In other words, there's no detail left unturned. The plan is for your ultimate good. If you're a child of God, we know that God takes everything and works it together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Romans eight twenty nine. And I would add, the plan is for his kingdom's progress. 
This is not just about Joseph and him being successful and getting to be second in command of Egypt. This is about God's grand redemption plan that he had for this small little family that he was working with. The plan is secret. God hides it from me until it happens. And I love Bob's illustration last time he talked about this, of the curtain and being behind the curtain. God is behind the curtain working in our lives. And we have events in our lives that absolutely sometimes just shock us. We can't believe this happened to us or that happened to us or how could this have been done to us? And yet God is behind the curtain. Nothing happens to you that God does not allow for his grand and great purpose of the redemption of a people for himself. Isn't that glorious? And finally, it's discovered day by day as it unfolds. This idea that you can lay out your life and plan every event of your life is ignoring that there's a sovereign God. Should you make plans? Absolutely. Should you try to carry them out for the glory of God? Absolutely. But guess what? There's going to be some surprises along the way. There's going to be some turns in your life that you're not going to imagine. They're going to be there because of his glory and good. Psalm 135, 5 and 6. For I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. This creation was made by his pleasure and we are created for his pleasure. And so strap on your seatbelt because that's what the Christian life is. The myth in our culture in the Christian world is just trust Jesus and he's going to make you prosperous and successful and life's just going to be problem free. That, my friends, is a myth. If you've lived long enough to know that, that is a complete myth. Yes, it will be successful according to God's plan. And yes, it will accomplish his purposes. But not in the way we would view success. John Flavel wrote, Some providence of God, like Hebrew letters, are best understood backwards. We've all heard the saying, 2020 hindsight. You can look back at your life. And you can see the hand of God and how he brought you to a certain place. And that's exciting, isn't it? When you can kind of look back and see the way the finger of God has worked in your life. The problem is, it's a little, it's a little blurry going forward. We're not sure what that's going to look like or how it's going to take shape. So let's look today first at Joseph's trials. They're being orchestrated by the Lord to accomplish God's purpose for Joseph and to carry out his grand plan of redemption. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says this, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance that we should walk in them. God has a plan for your life. And you don't know all the plan. That's why we need to be praying, don't we? Because we don't know all the plan. We don't know which way this is going to go. 
We have general guideline principles that we follow. And we know that he wants to use us for his purposes. God at least gave Joseph a little clue that there was success down the road for him. But I promise you, after the gut punch of the, of the betrayal of his brothers, and after the gut punch we're going to see today, it took a steady hand to keep his eye on the Lord. Now maybe you're here today and you've been gut punched. Maybe you're just coming out of it. Maybe you just realize I'm getting ready to get gut punched. How do I handle it? We're going to look at Joseph today to see exactly how he did that. We are called, we are no longer our own. We are bought with a price. Therefore, we're to honor God with our bodies. Isn't that great? We're no longer our own. We're his. J.R. Packer, talking about the providence of God, says this. The, the doctrine of the providence of God teaches Christians that they are never in the grip of blind forces, fortune, chance, luck, or fate, as that happens to them in divinely planned. And each event comes as a new summons to trust, obey, and rejoice, knowing that all is for one spiritual and eternal good. Every time your road takes a twist or a turn, Packer says it's a summons to trust, obey, and rejoice. I don't know about you, that's hard to do sometimes. Especially depending how hard the turn is. Because we do like to have our life planned out, don't we? But... We're the Lord's, and he takes us where he will. Second point, Joseph does not face his difficult trials alone. First of all, these trials are for God's purposes to accomplish God's plan. But he doesn't face these alone. The Lord is with him. I love this. Verse 2, chapter 39. The Lord was with Joseph. Those are great words. In the midst of this mess, God was with Joseph. And notice the results of that. Point one, he became a successful man. Do you realize that any success you have comes from the Lord? Whatever success you have, don't be proud to think it's you. It's you. Do you have to work? Absolutely. Do you have to plan? Absolutely. Do you have to give it energy? Yes, you do. But you can do all that and be a complete failure. It's the hand of God that causes people to be successful. And God was with Joseph, and everything Joseph did succeeded. So much so that Potiphar noticed, the world noticed, that something was going on here in his life. Joseph found favor in Potiphar's sight. Are there people that you found favor in their sight? That's the hand of God. That's his blessing on your life. Potiphar made him overseer of his entire household. And we're going to see this little refrain over and over again, aren't we? We're going to see this refrain three times. It's in Potiphar's household. Then it's going to be in the prison. Then it's going to be before Pharaoh. The Lord blesses everything that Joseph did. The Lord blessed Potiphar's house. 
for Joseph's sake. Remember the promise made to Abraham, those who you bless, who bless you will be blessed, and those who curse you will be cursed. Potiphar had chosen to bless Joseph, and God blessed Potiphar. And part of our life as Christians is to walk with Christ in such a way that we succeed in what he calls us to do, that we can be a blessing to what? To those people around us. This is not all about you and your life. It's about blessing the family of God and blessing what? Complete strangers. Because of what God is doing in and through your life. And Joseph handled everything. Everything. Potiphar's big decision of the day was what's he going to have for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. That was it. He had to manage that. Because he gave everything into Joseph's hands. Point three we see in this passage is Joseph faces his greatest moral trial. And as I studied this passage, I was greatly encouraged. You realize that we live in a culture that assumes that you are going to give in to temptation. That should be the normative pattern. Nobody really can stand up against sin. Everyone has to give in to sin. And it's just a matter of time before you do as well. That is the culture of the day. Now Joseph had a problem. The Bible says he was handsome in form and appearance. Now we heard those words before with his mom who? Rachel. God was gracious and let Joseph get the good looks from mom. Now, I just want to say, be really honest up front. I am so grateful God did not give me this burden to carry and its attending circumstances. Grateful for that. There's enough temptation in my life without being beautiful in form and appearance. Some of you I know struggle with that, and we'll pray for the burden that you bear in that situation. Now the question has to arise in the midst of this whole passage. If God is in charge of everything in my life, and evil happens in my life, then isn't God responsible for evil? Dr. Martin Lord jones answers by saying the following. The great problem is this. If God does govern and control everything, then what is his relationship to sin? All I can do is answer is to lay down a number of propositions that are clearly taught in the scripture. The first is that sinful acts are under divine control and occur only by God's permission and according to his ultimate purpose. So even though evil seems to be freely flowing, the Bible tells us in Genesis 45.8 that evil only happens under God's control and permission. Remember the story of Job and how Satan came to God one day and says, well, Job really wouldn't worship you if you didn't bless him the way you did. And God says, okay, you can go this far but no farther. You can't take his life. God controls the wickedness that goes on in the lives of people. Secondly, 
he says, is that God restrains and controls sin. Third, that he overrules sin for good. God, by his own grace, overrules sin for his good. And that he only permits, directs, restrains, limits, and overrules it. People alone are responsible for their sin. God is not the author of sin. James 1, 13 and 14 says that God is not, is not the author of sin. That sin comes from where? Within our hearts. And so God controls, limits, restricts, restrains, overrules in his world for his purposes, for his glory. That's a hard one for us to hold on to when we see some of the wickedness that goes on in this world. It's really difficult to get a hold of that. You know, this should give us great freedom to know that whatever we face in life, no matter how destructive, that is being limited and restrained by the loving, powerful hand of God. Isn't that a great encouragement, brothers and sisters? There's a lot of evil in this world. There's a lot of wickedness in this world. And yet it's being restrained by God. You know, it's kind of like, it's kind of like with amusement rides. I have some experience with amusement rides. This last week we went to Disneyland. The happiest place on earth. And I like most rides. But you'll have to admit that some rides try to be scary. And some of them try to think you're going to actually lose your life on this ride. And we did, one, we did one ride where we were going up in this old hotel and they were drop, dropping us up and down and all this. And I thought I was going to die. We saw the picture of me. And they always take a picture of you and that's so nice. You know, you're in total terror of what's going on. But if you'll notice, with all amusement rides, there is a limit to what they're going to allow that ride to do. That's why you get on there, right? Is because you believe with all your heart <laughs> that that thing's not going to go over the edge. You're going to actually take that turn and keep moving, right? Now, my theme song at amusement parks is It's a small world after all Because, being 6'9", there are some logistical problems that take place So if y'all saw a picture of me on one ride I had my knees up against the carriage as tight as I could go And I rolled my knees right up here in my chest the whole way one ride, I love this ride, you kind of soar over California, and you, you go, it's this 3D movie, and you're watching all this. So I'm looking, and everybody's sitting in their seat, and their feet are off the floor. My feet are not off the floor. My feet are on the floor. But the worst one was Space, Space Mountain? Space Mountain which is supposed to be the best ride ever. So all the kids have seen, gone to Space Mountain, and, oh, you got to go ride it. Oh, okay, let's do it. So we go through this line, we get the fast pass, and we're going through, passing all those poor souls who are having to wait while we just go right past them and get in line. So we get to the ride, and the moment of truth came, the gates open. And I'm getting to ride with my wife. That's always fun, you know, on these rides, because she's scared, she'll hold on to you and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> so she gets in, sits down. I get in, and I can't sit straight. So I turn my legs this way, 
The problem is this is not a single bar ride, it's a double bar ride. So you have two bars. So there's no way I can close this bar with my legs over here in Lori's lap. So I have an idea. Usually the first car has more leg room. So I'm saying, hey, Jenna, let's switch places. Oh, no, 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 sir. We'll take care of it. Don't you worry. I'm like, oh, great. What does this mean? So they, they move us forward. And everybody, of course, is now watching this event take place. <laughs> and so they get me out of the car. And, and I said, I'll go try the front. He said, oh, no, no, sir. That, that, that one's no bigger than the one you're in right now. So they came over there. And, of course, now, you know, it's all customer service, right? So they, they were wonderful. They gave us all a, a free fast pass for eight people to go ride another ride. And they said, now, sir, here's what you need to do. We have, we have a car over here to the side that's not operational. You can go practice getting into the car. I looked at her like, I could practice for weeks and couldn't get in that car because I can't get my legs in there. So I just thought that was, uh, <laughs> that was humorous. So what do we learn from amusement rides, besides that it's a small world after all? We learn that there are limits on that ride that give us the comfort to know we should get on that ride. And that's what it's, what's true with God. There are limits that he places on everything. And no matter how bad it gets, we know that his restraining hand is there. And this is true in Joseph's life. So let's look at this great trial he faced. We're going to first look at the great temptation. So Joseph is a young man. This temptation for him was huge. He was in his prime. All of his hormones were raging. And he was, he was a man that was desired. Secondly, he was very successful. And with success comes pride and competence. So he could have been very ripe for the picking here. Third, he had every reason to feel sorry for himself. Think about it. When you give in to sin, isn't there usually a situation where you're feeling sorry for yourself? And that you deserve this? Is this not what Satan did to Adam and Eve in the garden? Even though they were blessed to have life and to have a brand new creation and all of God's blessings, Satan found a way to question God and to cause them to feel sorry for themselves. That they didn't have the wisdom that Satan had promised them. So Joseph had all kinds of reasons. The betrayal of his brothers, being sold into slavery. Um, he could have felt that God had completely forsaken him. He was in a different culture. He had no promise that he would ever get out of this situation whatsoever. When you and I feel sorry for ourselves, we need to look out. Because when we do that, it's just a matter of steps before we're into sin. That's all it takes. And fourth, she was his superior. He, her servant. And in the slave culture, it was common it was called strategic adultery, where you would do what they asked in order to be promoted and moved up the ranks. And he knew that if he crossed her, he could lose a lot. 
He was in a place of success. He was in a place of privilege and all these things. And he knew if he told her no, she could really hurt him. Six, the temptation was not just some vague kind of smiling or winking at you. She was very clear. Come lie with me. No, no room for trying to figure that one out. That was pretty straightforward. The temptation was great because it happened daily. This woman was persistent. She was constantly trying to get him to lie beside her or to come be with her. And he was in a situation where, you know, in some situations you have that going on in the workplace, you can say, hey, I've got to go. I've got to get another job. And you quit getting another job. Uh, There was no quitting this job. He was a slave. He was where he was. He was not getting away from this temptation. It was there. You know, we're not always able to avoid temptation. We would love to as much as we can, but there's times we can't. If your only strategy is to not be where there's temptation, if that's your only strategy for defeating temptation, you are in trouble. Because you can't always avoid it. Finally, she gives up everything and just attacks him physically. That's a strong temptation. And we know it's a strong temptation because he just didn't stand there, did he? He got out of that garment, he let her go, and he ran. Let's look at the great refusal. We have the great temptation. I mean, monumental. The Bible doesn't describe who she was or what she was like. But we know it was a temptation. Most men would have fallen in this scenario. Let's look at Joseph. Why did he not? The great refusal, or the, I would call it the great taking a stand. Notice, first of all, in the scriptures, that he talks to her. Her, 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 her appeal is, come lie with me, and look what he says in verse 8. Behold, because of my master, no concern about, has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself. Because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Notice what he says to her. He lets her know the great cost of this sin. He does not encourage her. He remains resolute. He avoided being with her in whatever the situation was. And he refused physically by removing himself from her. He knew he was vulnerable. Edwards makes the following statement, Jonathan Edwards. They are most safe who are most sensible of their own weakness. Most distrustful of their own hearts. And most sensible of their continual need of restraining grace. If you're so sure you won't fall, good chance you will. 
Pride comes before a fall. Joseph knew that in the long run, he had to stay away from her. He knew that with one swing, she could knock him out. And so he avoided her. It's kind of like boxers in a ring. Knowing you're dealing with an opponent that's more formidable. Your plan is what? Stay away. Keep moving. Avoid being hit hard. He knew that there was strong temptation there. And he prepared himself for that. Notice what he says to himself. He's also speaking to her, but he's also speaking to himself. You know, it's very important what we say to ourselves in temptation. What do we say? He reminds himself of the privileges, the responsibility, the success and trust that he had been given in this household. He was counting his what? Blessings. He, was, he had a grateful heart to his owner, Potiphar, and also to who? The Lord. He realized that God was with him, and he realized that God had put him in this place. And he had such a relationship with God that he didn't want to offend God. Sometimes for us, when we sin, we're not that concerned about offending God. We're kind of focused on ourselves. Why did Joseph stand? Because he had a relationship with God. He knew that everything he had in his hands was from God. He was focusing on the positive. He wasn't focusing on the negative. He had a grateful heart. And he didn't want to offend his God. Now the sad story for a lot of us is we'll be very careful not to offend people. We'll bend over backwards not to offend people. But for God, not, not so much. What would have been the outcome if Adam and Eve had that mindset? Man, Adam, look, Eve, look at all that God's given us here. He's given us everything here except for this one tree. Notice the parallel between these temptations. Joseph had everything at his disposal except for what? Except for Miss Potiphar. What is it about the sinful heart that we have to have the one thing we can't have? What is it about that in us? Sin's a slap in God's face. Joseph understood the magnitude of this sin against God. He truly understood it. Our culture tries to numb us to that all the time. They continually numb us through our entertainment and all the things we have to the gravity of this type of sin. It's just an indiscretion. You, you name it. He fully understood the wickedness of this Secondly, he realized that the relationship between Potiphar and his wife, there was a covenant between them and God. Third, he reminded himself that God is watching. This is really the fear of God, isn't it? The fear of God is being so aware of God. It's as if he's in the room with us because he is. 
And he reminded himself of this wicked sin against the holy God. John Gill talks about the emphaticness of the statement. The statement literally is this. This wickedness. This great one. Joseph understood the gravity of this sin. And he understood that God was watching over and caring for him. And so in the midst of an unbelievable temptation, he takes his stand, removes his outer garment to get free, and runs. How shall I do this great sin against the Lord? There's great hope in this passage, brothers and sisters. There's great hope. To stand in the face of great temptation. Why? Because God was with him. Because God was blessing everything that he did. Because he was cognizant that God had put him in that place. He saw the wickedness of that sin. David didn't see it, did he? With David, the roles were reversed. He found Bathsheba. He called her in. It happened. Samson. Judah. Joseph tells each of us here, man and woman, that by God's grace, you can be pure. By God's grace, you can stand. Against the greatest of temptations, you can stand. Not in your own strength, but in the strength of the Lord, you can stand. Greater is he that's in you than he that is in the world. Joseph's life was a life of moral excellence. He was disciplined. He was energetic. He was a hard worker. And so when he faced this trial, he was not a man of compromise. A lot of us, we have little compromises we make all the time in our moral, in our moral character. And then all of a sudden the big temptation comes and bam, it's, we're overwhelmed by it. We're blown away with it. Joseph stands. And he pays the price. Miss Potiphar falsely accuses him. She turns the story all the way around backwards. She blames her husband. She blames Joseph for, and she blames his ethnicity. She does the whole nine yards. And Joseph finds himself in prison. And yet we read, verse 21, But the Lord was with Joseph, and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. God has a plan for Joseph. And Joseph did not get sidetracked into immorality. Joseph was faithful wherever he was placed. What about us? Where are you at right now? Are you being faithful? Are you standing up to the temptations that you face? Obviously, you don't know all that God has planned for your life because it's a secret. 
But we do know that God wants to use each one of us for his glory and his purposes. The God of Joseph is our God. Joseph was not superhuman. He was a man just like us. And yet, because God was with him, because he had the fear of the Lord, because he had a relationship with God, because he was grateful for what God had done and was doing in and through his life, through a lot of pain and a lot of hurt, he was able to stand and ultimately to provide deliverance not only for Israel, but for nations all around because of the great famine that was to come. Remember, brothers and sisters, grace <clears throat> abounds. God is with us and for us in the trials of life. God helps us be faithful during the trial. God helps us accomplish his purposes despite our circumstances. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this great testimony of your faithfulness in the life of Joseph. And despite the gut punches he received from his brothers and from Miss Potiphar, that he held on to you, that he would not sin against you. Father, I pray that you would grant us grace to grow in the fear of the Lord. And grace, Lord, to rejoice in all the good things you've done for us. And Father, to know that no matter what the future holds, that you're faithful to cause us to be useful where we are. Father, we live in a world that says there is no God and he's not in control. But Lord, you are. You are so in control. And you are so able to strengthen men and women to walk in righteousness by your grace. We were saved by grace. We are new creations in Christ, prepared in advance to walk in good works. Oh, Father, I pray that you'd strengthen those here today who are tempted to give in to temptation and to live for themselves. Lord, that they would open up their eyes and look up and see the glory of living for you. In Jesus' name, amen.